Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, February 18th, 2011. Oh, I'm sore. Oh, man. Yeah, I've taken up exercising again and hit the weights yesterday. Yeah, (laughs) they hit me back. Oh, man. I don't want to hear any jokes about me doing the Daniel plan. I'm not. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We just take the time to compare what these people are saying and compare it to God's Word. Uh, Because here's the deal. We can trust God's Word. And and, and in the church, hello, hang on, let me see if this is on. Yeah, that's how, you know, in the church, pastors, uh, you're supposed to actually be preaching the Word, not the, the stuff that you just make up or the things that kind of burble up from within inside of, you know, inside of you. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, yeah, I told you at the beginning of the program, no jokes about the Daniel plan. I am not. No, that's not what's going on. From time to time, I kick my exercise routine from mediocre into a little bit more of a higher gear in order to accelerate weight loss and things like that. It has nothing to do with the Daniel plan. I hear you guys out there just laughing and snickering at me. <laughs> yeah, stop. No. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I can't do anything about it anyway because I have limited range of motion right now because I'm sore. <sighs> it's Friday. I'm coming limping in. All right. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, we got an interesting program lined up for you today. Um, let's take a li- let's look at what we're going to talk about. Uh, for- <laughs> first, oh, man. I do, don't you guys miss the day when pastors were respectable? Don't you miss the days when, you know, when somebody would say the name pastor? You thought of a professional. You thought of somebody who was a respectable man of God, somebody who was, quote, a man of the cloth. This was somebody who's stu- you know, who studied God's word seriously and preached as seriously and called people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, rightly handling God's word and all. Yeah, nowadays, yeah, that pa- those pastors, yeah, don't even apply. No, 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 no. What we need nowadays is 
We don't, who cares if they can handle God's word? The question is, can they draw a crowd? Can they entertain? Can they put together YouTube videos and rap? You know, because Ed Young Jr. has kind of started this whole thing where, you know, the creative seeker driven pastors, you know, they rap. You know, they put rap videos together. Well, we've got a <laughs> rap video for you to hear. And oh, man, it's, yeah. It's another one of those relevancy fail things that just. You know, and the reason I'm going to play it is to um, remind you of the days when uh, these uh, uh, circus church ringleaders were not, you know, they weren't even on the radar. You know, apparently this is all about being relevant and drawing a crowd. So this will this will whet your appetite for the old days, if you know what I mean. By the way, there are churches out there that have pastors who who still do it the old way because the old way is the correct way. Um, so, you know, anyway, just want to put that together. Um, I've got a, uh, I've got the second, uh, Jeffrey Small from the Huffington Post, the guy who wrote the book, The Breath of God. Uh, yesterday I read the part of the first article that he wrote for the Huffington Post. I'm going to read part two today. It's called Reimagining God in the 21st Century. And the reason I want you to, I, I want you to hear this, and I've laid the foundation yesterday, is because this, what you're going to hear is actually the biblical I mean, definition, dictionary definition of idolatry. I, I am not joking. That's exactly what this is that you're going to hear today, and uh, you you, you got to hear it to believe it. I mean, talk about the arrogance that you, I mean, it's just and blindness. Oh my goodness. Oh man, this is just crazy what you're going to hear. Um, and then uh, after the break, we're going to be listening to Roman Catholic mystic Richard Rohr. Uh, 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 you know, and his uh, part of his contribution to the uh, Telus series over there at evolutionarychristianity.com. And uh, you've got to hear this too, boy. Um, y'all familiar with um, irrational philosophy? Well, that's really one of the things that's at the heart of mysticism is it causes you to turn your brain off and the logical law of non-contradiction ceases to exist, at least in the category of things spiritual. You can't live it out in the rest of the world. Yeah, no, we'll explain that as we go. But apparently when it comes to things spiritual, yeah, you can embrace the flat-out contradictions and and call that wisdom. Oh, yes, I'm so wise because I'm embracing the truth of both mutually exclusive claims because I am not going to be an either-or bifurcated person i'm going to embrace the truth of all wholeness and yeah you got to hear it this yeah and but so if you know anybody who uh, is into the spirituality of richard Rohr, which by the way uh is very similar to the spirituality of brian mclaren mclaren and Rohr are, are well they're, they're close to each other and mclaren's new book is coming out soon entitled naked spirituality yeah that's i would not consider seeing brian mclaren naked as a spiritual experience so did I say that out loud? Yeah, I guess I did. Oh, well, too bad. I'm not going to edit it out. <laughs> and then oh, for the balance of the program, uh, hour number two, we're going to be listening to two very good sermons. Um, the uh, The text is uh, for both of the sermons is actually it's two texts. Uh, the, the Old Testament text of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20, and the Gospel of Matthew ch- uh, chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. And what I'll th- do for good measure, I'll even throw in the epistle reading, because uh, both Pastor Swirla and Pastor Hodel, whom you will be hearing from today, preach fantastic sermons from these texts. 
and the uh, the epistle text is 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 through 9. So what I'll do is I'll 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 do it in order. I'll I'll read the uh, Old Testament new uh, epistle and then gospel text for you and then play for you these two sermons. The first one is entitled Your Dreams Betray You. Yeah, in other words they show you to be a, a selfish schlub um, by Pastor Ron Hodel. And then uh, Pastor Swirla's contribution is entitled The Deep Diagnosis. Both of these are fantastic examples of rightly handling the text and preaching the law lawfully to convict you of your sin and and show you that your sinfulness goes all the way down to the core, baby. And uh, and that the only so, the only hope you have is the forgiveness of sins won by Christ and his shed blood for you on the cross. This I just oh man, both sermons are spectacular. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, make yourself comfortable. Your listener experience is important to me. Feel free uh, to make yourself comfortable. If you want to exercise while listening to Fighting for the Faith, uh, please do so in a healthy manner. That is, is you know, because you, know, you may be tempted if you're going to exercise while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Like if you're on the treadmill, you know, and and you've got it set to where you're going like about four, four and a half miles an hour, you might actually, you could potentially fall off the treadmill while listening to four portions of Fighting for the Faith. So make sure that you've got the correct safety things hooked up to you so that you don't hurt yourself. Um you know, th- things of that nature. Um, of course, if you would like to wear fuzzy bunny slippers, it does enhance your listener experience. Of course, if you would like to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we don't have a problem with that. Feel free to en- en- enjoy an adult beverage with this caveat. Don't want to take it too far. This is a gift from God, and it's not to be taken to uh, the point where you're sinning by abusing that gift. So uh, keep that in mind. And uh, with that, you know what I should probably do is uh, play our warning here because uh, – this is one of those episodes where I, a warning is appropriate. Warning. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Amen. Amen. Uh... <laughs> Melba, okay. Oh, man. I am loopy. I'm in pain. Oh, man. All right, so this first segment. Uh, let me set this up here. There is a church down, down in uh, Arkansas entitled New... The name of it is New Life Church. It's pastored by uh, lead pastor Rick uh, Bezet and his wife, Michelle. So, the you know, so anyway, uh, and they, they're celebrating their 10-year anniversary and so Pastor Stovall Weems, uh, he pastors a church uh, called Celebration Church in, uh, it's in Florida somewhere. Well, hang on, well, let me see if I can find where he's at. Uh, I'll have to look it up. But Stovall Weems, I don't know if we've actually uh, reviewed a sermon of his. He's in, He's on my radar list of, of people that we really actually need to review because in listening to a few of his sermons. Uh, anyway, so here is Pastor Stovall Weems. Uh, rapping and um probably you know I'm not a fan of rap by the way I'm just not a fan of rap music but this is not going to help make me want to enjoy rap in fact this is going to make me hate it even more 
And uh, and it makes me long for the day when pastors would not do this kind of stuff. But here we go. Slick Rick's what we call him in the ministry. Life Church, it's your 10-year anniversary. Oh, man, is that bad. Whew. Congratulations from the Celebration family. Now hear my heart like my doctor did in surgery. Hey, y'all, it's Pastor Stovall. I'm throwing tight rhymes like Ryan Mallet throws a football. I know your church, they have a call to reach the folks in Arkansas. So reach them with the gospel. That's a quote from the Apostle Paul. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, New Life Church. Oh, man. Here's the sad part. I mean, as awful as this is, as far as music and rap and all that, it's this is just. Wow. Um, he actually raps better than he preaches. I mean, his, his sermons are <laughs> way worse than this. <clears throat> we continue. Church. Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Happy birthday, New Life Church. Five kids who never really gave you strife. Five kids because you really love your wife. You're so sharp, we should just call you hunting knife. Dino, John, and Chris are just a begging just to have your life. Pastor Rick, I'm telling you my point of view. And I hope my message doesn't misconstrue. But Brother Randy, you know he wants to be like you. It's down deep in his stomach and it festers like the stomach flu. Happy birthday. Those are horrible lyrics, just awful. By the way, if you were to uh, go to the New Life Church website, uh, they they actually have one of their campi is entitled the Arkansas Dream Center. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what does that tell you about their theology? Happy birthday. And by the way, Stovall Williams, his uh, his church in uh, Celebration Church is in um, Jacksonville, Florida. Happy birthday, New Life Church. Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday, New Life Church. Life Church, it reaches the community. God's called it to help to set the people free. They eat the word like they were eating boyardee. Are you razor? Uh, oh, this is painful. You know what's funny is, is that you know here we're celebrating the 10-year anniversary of, of New Life Church. You know, I cannot remember ever being a part of a Lutheran congregation where we celebrated the anniversary of that particular church. Um, the reason why is because um, we're all part of the church, which uh, your your individual congregation is a part of the church. But, I mean, yeah, yeah it's um, the one thing about these seeker-driven guys, I mean, you know they sure do like tooting their own little horns and uh, and letting everybody know how they, unlike every other church, they're getting it right. Unlike every other church, they're the, and and thank the Lord for ten years of freedom from slavery and bondage to boring churches that you know preach the word exegetically and proclaim forgiveness of sins. And oh yeah, we don't want that. No, no, we want this. Facts. Let me hear you say Sue. Church, we say congratulations. One decade of work and dedication. That's right. We want our church to be liked by the world. We're tired of the church being hated by the world. Yuck. 
Yeah, we want the world. We want to look just like the world so that we can let the world know that we're just like the world, man. For Jesus Christ, you work to change the nation. For me and Carrie and all of celebration. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, New Life Church. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, New Life Church. Yeah, that was pretty awful. Wow. <laughs> hey, I, oh man, I, I, thinking about hurting myself after listening to that. Okay. Oh man, that was horrible. All right, moving along here from the Huffington Post. Headline reads: Reimagining God in the 21st Century by Jeffrey Small. Now I read part one, you know, a part of part one yesterday, but this is where I really wanted to go. Now he, here's the deal, okay? The Bible describes what idolatry is. Okay, if you have your Bible, in fact, what we're going to do is we'll, we'll look at the biblical text regarding idolatry first, and then we'll take a look at this article because <laughs> this fits the biblical example of what idolatry is to a T. So if you have your Bible, flip on over to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. Isaiah, chapter 44. I will begin at verse 9 and read for just a smidge here. And so here we go. Isaiah, chapter uh, ch- chapter, uh, chapter 44, starting at verse 9. We read, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit their witness neither uh, their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame that's right yeah yeah see well, you know when you make an idol and the, you know the, the god that you believe in ain't there yeah no that's just a figment of your imagination so yeah the, the when it comes to god okay w- what matters is the one who's there the the real one, not your imagination, your creativity, your cultural circumstances. None of that matters. What matters is the one who's actually there. And so if you create a god, the god you've created, well, isn't really a deity. It's just really, in a sense, um, you projecting yourself onto the universe in such a way you go, oh, there's my god. And back in the time, uh, you know, what would happen is, is that people would take the extra step, you know, to actually fashion an idol to go along with their idolatrous thoughts. I mean, that's just how it worked. But so um, let's see. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may uh, be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. So now we continue reading verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it, and he warms himself. He kindles a fire, and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god, and he worships it. 
he makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied, and he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it, and he worships it. He prays to it and says, Oh, deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burn in the fire. I also bake bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, and you are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like the mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and he and will be glorified in Israel. For thus says your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars, and who makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying, to, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Yeah. So you see what's going on there? Quite a contrast between the dumb idols, the figments of the imaginations of those who crafted them. Well, now in our day, okay, here's the deal. People, I don't know if they're just lazy. Maybe they just don't have the craftsmanship of the old idolaters. I, you know, I, you know, idolatry just isn't what it used to be. And, you know, the, apparently idolaters are so lazy nowadays that they don't even take the time to, you know, to grab a block of wood or stone or whatever and form their, their God, you know, into something that they can worship, you know, it, no, instead, they're, they're, they're too lazy to do that, obviously playing Xbox or something. And instead, they just create their own god, their own god in their own image. And, and, they, and their idolatrous idea is just that floats around in midair. That becomes their deity, kind of like the flying spaghetti monster. But anyway, with that in mind, okay, that idolatry is somebody just fashioning an idol and bowing down before it. Now we listen to... This article, or parts of it, by Jeffrey Small, the author of The Breath of God, called Reimagining God in the 21st Century. Here we go. Unlike the age of the biblical writers, we live in a world ruled by science, technology, and secular thought. Uh, really? Um, you mean the rules of science didn't apply back in the old days? You know, so people didn't have DNA and biological processes didn't exist back in biblical times? Hmm. A world that is interconnected in ways that a few decades ago was just unimagined. 
We Today, we understand that our world is governed by physical laws mm-hmm. and the subatomic realm to the cosmic. So where do we find room for God to act? Is God still relevant? How can we conceive of God today in a way that is honest to our intellects while satisfying our hearts? Let me read that question again. You ready? Here we go. How can we conceive of God today in a way that is honest to our intellects while satisfying our hearts? In other words, apparently when it comes to deities, you can just make up your own. And one that, well, satisfies your heart. And it doesn't insult your intellect, of course, because everybody knows that your intellect can't be insulted. No, no, no. In my previous post, Moving Beyond a Human Image of God, I set forth the problems of the classical picture of God as a supernatural being. No, actually, you just, it was kind of a string of unconnected, uh, you know, at, they weren't even, they, they didn't follow. I mean, they were non-secretors. Anyway, um, God as the potter, the watchmaker, the chess master, uh, master has lost its relevance. Oh, I see. So, yeah, so if God's not relevant, he's got to go. I'm sorry, God. It's been nice knowing you, but, well, we just don't think you're relevant anymore. So you, you just need to pack up your bags and head off to the the nearest cloud, apparently. Anyway, um, the response to this critique by some is to close their eyes to science and the realities of existence. Actually, no, Jeffrey. Um, I, I reject evolutionary theory and materialism on scientific grounds. Sorry. Um, let's see here. Such a strategy is not, a, is not sustainable in society in which almost everything we touch and encounter during our daily lives depends upon the laws of physics. And they have in the past, too. Chemistry and biology working. Others take this atheistic approach One, I also do not find satisfying because I sense in the core of my being that there is a meaning, there is meaning in existence, and that we daily physically, in the daily physical reality of our world, is not the end of the story. So in this post, however, I will not debate the existence of God because I do not think that the argument is winnable by either side. Instead, I will outline ways in which we can start to understand God in a modern world. For me, God must uh, must not just be consistent with scientific and rational thought. He must embrace it. I have come to understand God not as a transcendent Zeus-like figure, but instead as the infinite creative source of existence. By creative source, here I do not mean to say that I think of God as creating existence by waving a magic wand from afar, but rather that all of existence, matter, energy, and the physical laws which govern the universe, even our consciences, well, it comes out of God. And this understanding of God is rooted not in creationism or intelligent design or desire for a father figure, but rather comes from this simple question posed by the first ancient Greek philosophers, uh, uh, Parmenides. The question is, why is there existence in the first place instead of nothing? I do not see this coming from God as just happening at one particular time in history, whether this was 6,000 years ago according to Genesis or 13.7 billion years ago according to the Big Bang Theory, but it happens continually. I do not see God as a separate being, but rather God is the center of being within me and, and everything around me. God did not form my distant ancestors out of clay, as mythological tales might suggest if taken literally. Rather, God is what gives me life and gives existence 
It's very structure, and this power is, uh, well, it's infinite, and, and it's indescribable because it lies behind all that is. God is not to be found out there, but he's got to be found deep within me and within my existence. My conception of God is not new, he says. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Yet, did you see what's going on here? How many times do you hear the word my, me, my thoughts, my, the God I, but the, yeah. This is the, <laughs> this is the classic description of what it means to fashion an idol. The only thing that's missing here is for him to go out and, you know, hack a tree out down in his uh, backyard and then fashion into some kind of a thing. It, it, you know what, though? <sighs> You know, um, Jeffrey, I think you should take the time to, uh, you know, name your deity. Yeah. I mean, that way I can mock him by name because <laughs> your God doesn't exist, Jeffrey. The God you believe in, it's the God of your own stomach. It's the God of your imagination. And see, the difference between your God and my God, my God actually exists. Yeah, my God actually is there. And uh, contrary to the claims that you made about, you know, the the God of the Bible, it's not like the biblical authors, you know, decide, well, let's get together, have a few beers, and let's talk about our conception of God, and, and let's see if we can fashion a God that'll kind of meet the needs of, of our time and, and our, our life here and the, and the culture that we live in. And, you know, so that we need that kind of a God. And, you know, and just kind of, you know, you know, cobble some kind of a deity together. Yeah, no, that's not how that came about at all. In fact, if you uh, read uh, the writings of the Apostle Peter, who, by the way, spent three years with Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the one true God, the God of the Jews of the Old Testament, that God, the God who didn't put up with any of the other nonsense gods, um, the God who uh, who mocked the idols, the God who inspired the prophet Elijah to yell out to the prophets of Baal, yell louder, I'm sure, you know, because, you know, they were yelling to their God, invoking his name, and he wasn't answering. You know why? Because there was nobody home. Their God didn't exist. Baal doesn't exist. Asherah doesn't exist. Molech doesn't exist. Those are not real deities. They don't exist. And, but Yahweh, he exists. And Jesus claimed to be that God, the God of the Jews, Yahweh, in 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 the flesh incarnate and he proved his claim by raising himself from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate the apostle peter one of the guys who hung out with jesus for 3 years here's what he says about prophecy and the biblical writings and his experience with jesus i'm reading from his second epistle uh, second peter chapter 1 starting at verse 16 i read for we did not follow cleverly devised myths Yes, see, what Jeffrey's putting out there in that little Huffington Post article, that's a cleverly devised myth. Yeah, he, he if he prayed to his God, his God wouldn't answer because his God's not there. Anyway, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You could even say imagination. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we can't say the same thing about Jeffrey Small's deity because, well, Jeffrey Small, his deity was produced literally by his own will. This is the classic definition of idolatry. And Jeffrey, here's the deal. Your God doesn't exist. Your God cannot help you in times of trouble. Your God will not be there when you pray to it, he, she, whatever it is. Because like Baal, like Asherah, like Molech, like all the other false gods out there, your God isn't there. It's the figment of your imagination. It cannot help you. And on top of it, your God, by worshiping that little God, the God that was produced out of your own will, out of your own little heart and your own little ideas, by worshiping that God, you are breaking the first commandment, the one commandment that the first commandment that the one true God demands of us, that we will have no other gods before him. You need to repent because this idolatry will send you to hell and anybody else that you convince that this is somehow true regarding God. We don't get to conceive of our own deities. We don't get to reimagine God. That's idolatry. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ died on the cross even for that sin. He is the one true God in human flesh, and he proved it by raising himself from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's the God that you're going to deal with. And you will either be forgiven by him now and repent of this idolatry, or you will face him in judgment when he returns in glory to judge both the living and the dead. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. When we get back, get ready for some mysticism. Oh boy, this is gonna crazy. It's wild. Yeah, we'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low 
prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Warning, making your own God is called idolatry. That's the kind of stuff that gets you in hell. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or uh, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along here. Time for a little bit of mysticism. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope All right, that's our uh, mysticism update music, and uh, we're going to be now listening to um, a conversation with uh, Richard Rohr and and, uh, Michael Dowd from the Evolutionary Christianity website, and uh, boy, is this a doozer. If you don't know who uh, Richard Rohr is, Richard Rohr is a Roman Catholic mystic, and what you are about to hear is is classic irrational philosophy that supposedly is the thing is the is the wisdom is the is the fruit of the enlightenment that you experience in mysticism as you experience mystical realities and uh, holy guacamole this stuff doesn't make a hoot of sense because you can't live it out in real life but apparently this is this is truth when it comes to the spiritual. So listen in as they discuss evolution and mysticism. Here we go. Welcome to episode 15 of the Advent of Evolutionary Christianity, Conversations at the Leading Edge of Faith. I'm Michael Dowd, and I'm your host for the series. 
which can be accessed at evolutionarychristianity.com. And please do join the conversation. Today, our featured guest is Richard Rohr. Richard is a Franciscan who founded the Center for Action and Contemplation. He's a contributing editor for Sojourners magazine and also a contributor to Tacoon magazine. He's the author of Naked Now, Learning to See as the Mystic See, and Why Become a Catholic, and many other courses. Naked Now. Yeah, you, you remember hearing me talk about, you know, dancing around oak trees naked while waving chicken feathers? Yeah. yeah. ...and programs on audio and video. Here we talk about radical grace and evolutionary spirituality. And you'll see why Richard is revered by people across the spectrum. Now, here's the question I have for you. I mean, seriously, I mean, evolutionary Christianity is supposedly the Christianity that embraces the truth of evolution and finds a new way of interpreting and understanding the symbols of Christianity in light of this new evolutionary worldview. And what do we come up with? Roman Catholic monastic mysticism. Hmm. By the way, um, evolution is not just a mythology about humanity's past. It also is a a mythology about the future of humanity. Evolutionists always think things are getting better. Yes, that we're getting ready to take that next evolutionary leap. You know, look at the original Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry, that, yeah. That's the idea that we're going to uh, ascend to some new higher consciousness. And, yeah, yeah, all that, yeah, that kind of stuff. So evolution is this, po- this moving forward, moving upward, heading in, in an all positive direction. And, and then when we finally get it all right, then we've established the kingdom of God here on earth. And Jesus comes back and says, good job. Way to go. You finally figured it out. Now I'm king. Yeah, it's a, it's a mess. Um, no, in fact, uh, Jesus himself said that the future isn't bright, by the way. Um, let me give you an example. The parable of the weeds and the wheat. Yeah, Jesus tells the story of, you know, there was a farmer who sowed good seed in a field, but his enemy came along and sowed tares, uh, you know, weeds among the wheat. And it wasn't until they started growing up that his workers figured out and went, ah, look, there's there's tares in among your in the, among the wheat. Should we pull them up? And he's all, no, 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 don't, don't pull them up. Don't. Let them both grow up together, and then on you know on the harvest day we'll harvest them both and then separate them. Then you know the the tares and will be you know be burned up in the fire, and you know and the, and the wheat will be gathered into the barn. That's the idea, and so you know that's what that's a picture of what you. So Jesus, you know, in talking about the end, talks about wars, rumors of wars, and false prophets, false Christs. I mean, false miracles, just a mess. Yeah, it, it. this is the exact opposite. And then when Jesus comes, he's going to come in glory to judge the living and the dead. In other words, things ain't getting better. In fact, as uh, more sinners uh, get on the planet, we just can experience, we're going to be experiencing an exponential rise in sinfulness, and things ain't just going to, ain't, they ain't going to get better. That's at least what Jesus taught. But I mean, yeah, I'm just not mystical, so I'm I'm missing all this. But let's continue. Hello, Richard Rohr. And thanks for joining this conversation on evolutionary Christianity. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. I'm glad you're with us, too, because I have been tracking you for about 20 years. This is the first real conversation that we've had, but you've been an older, an older brother on the path for at least two decades. And what I found particularly valuable about your ministry over the years is the way that you consistently come from a place of grace, of generosity, of soul, of spirit, 
in such a way that you're one of the you're one of the thought leaders that really appeals to a wide variety of Christians. Uh, I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners uh, here early on just a little bit of your story, your testimonial, how you uh, how you came to your current embrace of of both your faith uh, and also an evolutionary understanding of reality. Yeah. Now listen, it's not just evolution. Did you hear that? an evolutionary understanding of reality. That Again, evolution is not just a mythology of man's past. It's also a mythology about our future. So it's you're not just believing that, oh, yeah, we came from, you know, you know some primordial ooze that turned into a tadpole that crawled onto land and began breathing and then turned into, you know, an ape. Yeah, that then evolved into a man. Yeah, that it's that's not just it. No, that we're we're just in the center here. Things are moving forward. This is an evolutionary worldview. Okay, how did he, and so the question is, how did he come to this? Listen carefully. Well, where do I start? Well, thank you first of all for giving me the opportunity. Uh, you know, I was raised a pre-Vatican II Catholic. In the 1940s and 50s, I went off to join the Franciscans as a young man, and I joined them at a very good time where uh, we were moving through the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. The men who educated me had been sent off to Rome and Europe and, and came back and really gave us good philosophy and good theology. Good philosophy. Uh-huh. They taught us how to think and how to use the tradition, not just to, to spout cliches, but how to integrate scripture and tradition and experience. Yes. So I was just given this great big gift. And from there, it just started moving. Uh, with all that great education, I, my first year, really second year, I guess, as a priest, I was put in charge of the retreat program for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. And um, the very first retreat I ever gave to a bunch of 19-year-old jocks who didn't want to really be there, they experienced what the Pentecostals would call the baptism in the Spirit while I was preaching. uh, I mean, I... You hear that? They had a... Apparently, the baptism of the Holy Spirit fell while a Roman Catholic monk who denies the gospel, the biblical gospel, was preaching. So they had an experience. And this is what helped enlighten him on a path to where he's now embracing this evolutionary worldview and his, quote, faith. Based upon the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, should we believe that this was the Holy Spirit or a deceiving spirit? You have to look at the text. What does the text say? The text says that the gospel they're preaching ain't the biblical gospel, so that wasn't the Holy Spirit. And now here we've got a bad tree producing really bad fruit. I didn't consider myself charismatic, uh, but it led me into what became the New Jerusalem community. I was called the, the founder and the father figure. But all I did was try to catch up with yeah. What clearly was happening, I wasn't creating it. Everybody thought I was. But it what it taught me more than anything else early uh, in the 70s 
was what the Franciscans had taught me on some level, but now it was experiential, was that such a thing as spiritual experience was truly possible. <laughs> and it wasn't all in the head. So I think that... that now notice it's not the gifts of the Spirit. Because remember, the, the, the day of Pentecost wasn't about a spiritual experience. It was about the Holy Spirit giving the ability, miraculously, to a group of Galileans to speak languages that they never studied so that they can communicate to people who were there from all over the Mediterranean uh, to, so they can communicate to them the gospel. They were hearing the wonders of God proclaimed in their own language. So already we got a problem because Acts 2 isn't about a, quote, spiritual experience. It's about a miracle given to people to speak and proclaim the gospel in languages they never learned. You can think of it, as, in a way, as a reverse Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, man's languages were confused. Right? We all the different languages, you know, were jumbled and, and people couldn't work together. God stymied their building project by making it so they can't communicate with each other. The exact opposite miracle takes place on the day of Pentecost. Now see what he did with it? Oh well, Pentecost was a spiritual experience. No, it wasn't. It wasn't a spiritual, mystical experience. It was the Holy Spirit falling and giving people miraculous abilities that they wouldn't have otherwise to proclaim the gospel, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So already we got a problem because the the uh, the, the Holy Spirit he's talking about ain't the biblical Holy Spirit, third person of the Holy Trinity, uh, because the gifts that are falling are for you to have personal euphoric spiritual experiences. That's not the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit. Really helped me put together head and heart. From there, things just moved. I moved out here to New Mexico in, in 86 to found the center. It's called the Center for Action and Contemplation. And I've uh, been here now 24 years where we're trying to help people put those two together, their active engagement in the world and the issues of our time with a deeper contemplative experience. So my life has unfolded in ways I never planned, but in some ways it's sort of felt organic how it, how it happened. And, mm -hmm. and, and I know I never expected this. I just tried to... Uh, well, see, that proves that it's authentic because he didn't expect it. Expect it or not, it has. these experiences have to be tested against the clear teaching of the Word of God. And when we do that, like I've already been doing, it's a problem. Keep listening for the next step, and it was always there. Mm -hmm. So I've had a wonderful life. But I've been here in New Mexico now for uh, 24 years, almost 25. Uh, and you're in a beautiful part of New Mexico, too. Yes, I sure am. Richard, I'm wondering, could you say a little bit more about the mission and ministry of the Center for Action and Contemplation? Well, in my early years, when I was still in Cincinnati, because of a set of recordings I'd made on the Old Testament and New Testament, I started getting invited to give retreats all over the world, actually. And uh, there, again and again, I saw the tremendous social needs of our time and our world, and yet, to be perfectly honest, I often was disappointed in some of the responses that I found what I would now call dualistic thinking, either-or thinking, all-or-nothing thinking. 
I found it to be as much on the left as it was on the right. Okay, notice the problem. Dualistic thinking, either or. But here's the deal. When it comes to truth, something's either true or it's false. That's not dualistic thinking. That's just reality. Okay, for instance, if you were to log on to your uh, the website for your bank and you were to check your balance, you know, right now, and let's just say hypothetically you opened up your checking account and in there you found that you had $150 sitting in your checking account, would it be if, – if I were to say, oh, no, 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 that $150, th- those symbols don't mean anything, what you really have in there is $3 million, you would say to me, that's not right. does not equal $3 million. And I'd say, oh, stop thinking dualistically. It's not like it's an either-or kind of thing. No, no, no. You need to expand your brain so that you can embrace both concepts. You'd say, Chris, you're a nut. And you'd be right. It was just a different vocabulary. But it still always split the universe into the good guys and the bad guys, totally right or totally wrong. So you can see why this set me up for the issue you're addressing, this whole Mm -hmm. unnecessary split. Now, I'm going to point something out here. Here's the dirty little secret uh, that Richard Rohr is just not going to tell you, okay? Let's back this up just a smidge. I'm going to back this up. I want you to listen carefully. I'll point this out to you. Hang on. Here we go. And yet, to be perfectly honest, I often was disappointed in some of the responses that I found what I would now call dualistic thinking, either-or thinking, all-or-nothing thinking, I found it to be as much on the left as it was on the right. Now, question, the way he's describing this, would you think that he agrees with either-or thinking? Or do you think that Richard Rohr thinks either-or thinking is wrong? By the way he's talking, it's obvious that he thinks that either-or thinking is wrong. In other words, here's the dirty little secret, he's engaging in either-or thinking. But because he's a mystic, because he's embraced this irrational philosophy, it's apparently okay for him to embrace either-or thinking and think the people who think about either-or thinking, is they're wrong, but he's doing the exact same thing he's condemning them for doing. Listen. It was just a different vocabulary, but it still always split the universe into the good guys and the bad guys, totally right or totally wrong. Yeah, but see, the people who did that, he thinks they're totally wrong, and apparently they're the bad guys. So you can see why this set me up for... The issue you're addressing, this whole Mm -hmm. unnecessary split between religion and evolution, it just, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense to me why it should even be a problem. Oh, Well, let me review to you some of the basics here. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the order of creation doesn't look anything like the story told by evolutionists. Yes, there's a problem there. But uh, I was forced into both and thinking simply by reason of... Dad, did you catch that? I was forced into both and thinking. Oh, so both. So both God created the heavens and the earth in six days and and, and Darwin was right and uh, the, the, there's a materialistic universe that came about by pure chance. Both and thinking. Of 
working with people who are trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what the center is about. So we call it this long, cumbersome title, the Center for Action and Contemplation. (laughs) But I always say the most important word in the title is and. Uh, (laughs) And in my last book, I wrote a whole poem called And, because that seems to me... uh, what wisdom always comes to, what what the contemplative mind can always see, that it, it doesn't create unnecessary dualisms. It doesn't create unnecessary problems. And for me, that's been the great loss to Western Christianity. That yeah, apparently. See, yeah. See, your problem is is that you're embracing either or thinking, and to see that, and he's right, and you're wrong, and you should be embracing both and thinking. Except for you're not right, he is, by embracing both and thinking, and you're wrong by embracing either or thinking. But he, see, through his enlightened, mystical, spiritual experiences, he's learned how to embrace both that are diametrically opposed. That the logical law of non-contradiction says they both stories cannot both be right. That we don't know that, that we... We've almost got a Ph.D. in creating either or thinking, you know. (laughs) Yeah, it makes you an expert in saying but, but. Yeah, Yeah, but see, what he's doing is he's saying either or thinking is wrong. He's using either or thinking as somehow a, a, a wedge against either or thinking. This is cheating. But instead of and. And so that's become really, I would say, the undertow to almost all of the things I try to teach, a kind of recognition of the contemplative mind. And when you bring that to the social issues, you just have much greater wisdom and much greater patience when you don't have immediate success. Yeah, I I have often said that liberals who trash conservatives and conservatives who trash liberals neither one of them really get evolution because evolution is a dance of a conserving element that that i mean dna you know is conservative it holds on to that which worked in the past that which was was vital to the stability or the the survivability or the whatever of the organism or the society and that's an essential component of any society or any any being for that matter any body this is just gibberish but there's also a need for that which transcends what has been before that which pushes the boundaries of the possible expands the circles of inclusion and that that progressive or liberal element is also essential to evolution and both are necessary and it's 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 precisely been your ability to and and not just your ability to do it personally but in your teaching you're constantly bringing people back to both and thinking get out of the dualisms it's not either or it's most often a larger whole that can embrace both. And Notice he's engaging in dualistic either-or thinking here in order to prove. So pay, apparently either-or thinking is wrong unless you're using it against either-or thinking. Then it's okay for you to engage in either-or thinking. And that both have some role in the body. And the combination of that and the fact that you have 
you have from the from the start for at least for a long time have placed a lot of emphasis on what I call orality the the oral mode of communication of information uh, there's something powerful that we've lost in a modern society in many cases where we where we pay attention to the words that are spoken teachings that come across in for example audio cassettes or or audio programs that we can listen to and then we create our own images and it's a different it's different than reading a book it's different than watching we create our own images a video and i know you've done those as well but but i remember my first introduction to you i think or maybe it wasn't the first introduction but certainly an early one was a friend of mine and he gave me a copy of your your teaching on the enneagram and the oh. audio cassettes and it was my first introduction to the enneagram oh, as a way of thinking about human differences yeah. and of course that model itself has been useful to so many people in helping us to move beyond thinking that other people are fundamentally flawed because they're not like us. I wonder if you could say just a little bit about some of your... Um... Except for the people who engage in either-or thinking, they're fundamentally flawed because they don't think like you. And this is just self-defeating. Some of the audio programs that have been particularly well-received in the world. Well, certainly the Enneagram was a big one, even though I've never considered that my main subject, but it, but it exemplified that... Your gift is your sin, and your sin is your gift, and you can't have one without the other, and, and don't take... <laughs> Where does the Bible teach your gift is your sin, and your sin is your gift? Your gift too seriously, because it carries a dark side. You know, there it was, both hands thinking. Yes. But also, for Christians trying to put together Old Testament and New Testament, and recognizing that it really wasn't old at all, that Jesus was a Jew, and unless we'd honor his Judaism, we really don't understand Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, so the same theme just kept recurring of, of what you said, both and thinking. Uh, you know, Richard, you mentioned, and I was really glad that you did, that when when we observe reality, when we pay attention to what's real, we can have our understanding and experience of God enriched. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about how has an evolutionary understanding of reality, an evidential understanding of reality, uh, you know, a science-based understanding of reality, made a difference in your own faith walk? Wow. It, you know, uh, Michael, it's almost foundational that if, if what's happening is evolving, then, of course, you've never got it. It keeps... Did you hear that? If what's happening is evolving. It's not just that evolution's about the past. It's about the future. To you with a beginner's mind. It keeps mm. you with a kind of humility, a kind of expectation, an open horizon. And I think the bane of religion has been this closing down way too early with the assumption that I I understand or I know. And I think this is... Well, 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 wait a second. We just read Peter. No revelation of prophecy has its origin in the thoughts of a man, but God carried along these prophets and spoke through them and inspired them. All revelation has its origin in the mind of God, and what he's revealed we can comprehend and know that that's certain, know that... With certainty. The arrogance that so many people have come to resent in religious people, not just Christians, the other religions too. Yes. That, that if, you, if you don't have 
Well, the way I put it is knowing in the mystics was always balanced with unknowing. And that putting together of knowing with unknowing is, for me, the very notion of biblical faith. What? Knowing through unknowing? That's like saying that you love by not loving, or that you work by not working, or that you see by not seeing. This is ridiculous. I mean, serious. Would you let a mystical mechanic touch your car? Would you hire a mystic portfolio manager to pick the stocks in your 401k? Would you go to a mystic dentist or hire a mystic building contractor who believes that the way you build is by not building? This is ridiculous. This is irrational philosophy. That this both end thinking that claims, you know, in a pietistic way that it doesn't engage in either or thinking. And by doing that, it's engaging in either or thinking and putting down those who do either or thinking because they're not embracing both and. But I mean, this is not biblical faith at all. This is the exact opposite of faith. The exact opposite of faith is doubt. Faith is trust. Faith is trust in clinging to God. Let me uh, let me read a couple of passages to you. Hebrews chapter 11. Let me read. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Not an evolutionary worldview here, but we understand that by by faith, by trust, by trust in God's revealed word, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, commend, uh, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And through uh, and by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, that's trust, it is impossible to please God. Now, it's important to know this, that in Greek, the, the noun faith, pistis, is, is derived, it's, it's, its verbal form is pistuo. And what it means is this tenacious, certain clinging on to and trusting. What Richard Rohr here is describing is the exact opposite. Doubt is the enemy of faith. It is not faith. Yeah, this is just insanity that we're listening to here. Now, when you eliminate all unknowing and make it all knowing, I'm certain about everything. Uh, Where in the Bible does it teach us that we're certain about everything? It just says that we're certain about what God has revealed. We can know that with certainty. The things he's promised, we can know for certain. This is a this is a straw man argument. Oh, well, as soon as you say that you know everything, no Christian that I know says he knows everything about God. But what God has revealed, we can know with certainty. And I understand everything. You're really, in my opinion, you're outside the realm of biblical faith. And and you don't notice the either or thinking. If you if you believe in certainty, you're outside of the Christian faith. That's either or thinking. Yet he just earlier condemned it. Don't have people who are humble 
are in awe before reality. What an evolutionary perspective does is necessitate that you're always in kindergarten. You know, you're mm-hmm. always in awe. You're always expecting more. You're always allowing God to be mystery. You never assume you totally understand. If religion had approached the world in that way, I, I think the whole world would love religious people. <laughs> oh, this is ridiculous. You know, the line from uh, Billy Madison comes to mind. Let me play it for you. What you've just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's all that needs to be said. We are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackandfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Whew, we'll be right back. Two good sermons back to back. Kind of get this other stuff out of your head. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right. 
right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Got two good sermons for you. But we got to cue up the music first. That's our tradition here. Getting a little bit more of an idea of what that mysticism, evolutionary worldview is all about. It's about irrational philosophy. And the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, we got two of them today. Uh, first one comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. Pastor Ron Hodel presiding. The name of the sermon, Your Dreams Betray You. The second sermon comes to us via Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. Pastor William Swirla presiding. The name of the sermon is The Deep Diagnosis. As you're listening to both of these sermons, watch how the law is used. I guarantee you are going to be convicted of your sinfulness. Not just your sins, your sinfulness. Mucho importante difference there. The texts for the sermons, I'm going to read them all here. The Old Testament text is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. Epistle is 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through uh, 9. And the gospel text is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. Let me uh, kill the music here. All right, let me kill that. There we go. All right, so... Without any further ado, let's do the let's uh, let's listen into the uh, the the readings first, so that we know what's going on here. So the first reading is, like I said, Deuteronomy chapter thirty, verses fifteen through twenty. I read: See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, think about what we read earlier, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and strength and the length of of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord your, that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob to give them that's the old testament reading the epistle text comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 through 9 i read but i brothers 
could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And the gospel text that forms the core of what it is that we're going to be hearing today from these two sermons is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. I read, this is Jesus preaching. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly that your accuser with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or it is the throne of God, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. These are the texts that form the basis of the sermons that you are about to hear, and you'll notice there's no gospel in these texts. But watch what both of these pastors do. First up, Pastor Ron Hodel, sermon entitled, Your Dreams Betray You. Here we go. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His just decrees, then you shall live. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, 
but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. The law of God requires you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do this, and you will live. Well, good luck with that. And in fact, you're going to need even more than dumb luck. You're going to need a whole new start. Not just a fix-it job on this old fat life, but a whole new life. In fact, a death and resurrection life. Until then, good luck. From the moment we wake up in the morning until the minute we go down at night, day after day, we don't come even near loving God with all of our heart and with all of our mind, with all of our strength and with all of our soul. We don't come near keeping God's name holy as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, be our Father, morning till night. We're absorbed with ourselves. Your dreams betray you. They certainly betray me. Dreaming about how I could do it better. How much better it would be if I were king of the world. If I won the lottery. If I were the coach of the Steelers. If I had been asked for solutions to the California budget or the national debt. If I were the boss. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then why don't you just do it? Daydream about your neighbor, not yourself. Daydream about your neighbor striking it rich. Daydream about your coworker being recognized and honored at work. Daydream about Warren Buffett increasing his wealth. Or about President Obama being admired and respected all over the world. Bizarre. Not really. Our dreams are centered on ourselves because we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We're jealous of our neighbors, covetous of their good fortune. The law is as simple as it is impossible. And because it's impossible, we strive to manipulate it so that it comes down in our favor. We look for loopholes, exceptions, excuses. I'm not as bad as humanity's worst, you know. If you only knew what stress I was under. If you only knew how many hours I work. If you only knew where I came from, then you'd see how good I really am. But in truth, although there is a difference indeed between calling someone a fool and sticking a knife into the back, the difference between us sinners as to the magnitude of our sins is as insignificant to God in the long run as the difference between how fast 
two nearly identical snails can ooze their way across your front porch. That's the difference of magnitude between our sins and Al-Zawari's. Or, on the positive side, between our good works and Mother Teresa's. And that statement, we hate with all of our heart and soul and mind and body. Scripture says, repent. We failed to meet God's perfect standard. We've put ourselves first. Jesus, on the other hand, fulfills the law perfectly in our place. First, by by preaching it. He preaches the law. He preaches his law more sternly than it had ever been preached before. Not that he adds to the law. You have heard it said, but I say to you, no. He simply preaches it with the same force as he gave it to Moses in the first place. It's just that the people of his day, like us in our day, had softened it, lightened it up. Brilliant rabbi schools arguing with each other as to whether a man could divorce his wife for just one cause or for any cause at all. As if divorce was God's precious dream for his people. God desires there to be sexual purity among his disciples. A set-apart holiness wrapped around his good gift of marriage. Not just in outward deeds, but in inner thoughts as well. So the author of the law preaches his law. Full strength. You have heard it said, You shall not murder. But I say to you, that isn't even enough. And he fills in the details, not as if he is setting forth case law, not as though he is giving us every thought he's ever had on the subject, but generally godly truth. It's about more than physically murdering, Jesus says. It's about relationship, not only with our neighbors down the street, but especially with our neighbors in Christ. The one sitting right next to you in the pew today? Or the one who sits in that other service that you don't go to? Not that all anger is sinful. After all, Jesus, sinless Jesus, did flip over the tables of the money changers. But if our anger is intended to destroy... Even if that anger remains buried, hidden from sight in the depths of the heart, even then our lives are in eternal danger. So if your brother has something against you, or you something against your brother, and it is not reconciled, you will be thrown into prison and will not get out until you pay the very last penny. This isn't some fiery prophet in the Old Testament. This isn't John the Baptist. This isn't some wingnut preacher out there. This is Jesus. Our speech matters. Don't use words lightly. Don't be deceitful. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Swear no false oaths for they grow from the root who is Satan himself. Jesus preaches his law. He doesn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And the first way he fulfills it is by preaching it. 
He preaches it in such a way that we can't escape its piercing arrows. He preaches his stern and indeed damning law because the law-keeping of the scribes and Pharisees is a farce. The best we can do, the most law we can keep, scribes and Pharisees as well, is as like one snail out scooting another. Jesus doesn't preach his law for kicks. He preaches his law to destroy. Destroy in a good way the false hopes and the word games of men. He won't gospelize the law. He preaches his law to crush, to empty, to expose, and to leave us vulnerable. For his goal is that everyone would hear his law and would say, that's right, and now I see and I realize too that I deserve no mercy. I'm hardly a picture of salt and light. I'm hardly a portrait of a child of God. But Jesus would not leave us in that despair. There is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's the righteousness of Christ Jesus himself. He kept the law, crossed every T, dotted every I, and still he carried the wood to Golgotha, the Lamb of God himself, the pack horse. He who never did anything the law forbade, who always did what the law commanded, he provided the sacrifice, paid every last penny for you and for me, for every last man, woman, and child to ever live. He loved his father with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. And he loved his brothers and his sisters that much. He took your place, your sins, your guilt, your shame into himself and gave you in their place his righteousness, his innocence and blessedness, declared it yours. He spoke you clean, breathed his life-giving spirit upon you, named you his, baptized you into his death, and therefore you belong to him and to his resurrection as well. And by his death, he sets you free. Some call this cheap grace. Cheap. Because it's Christ's work, not your work. It's not cheap. Like like amnesty week at the library. Well, God doesn't really care all that much. He'll look the other way. Just give the books back. It's not an excuse to sin. This is costly grace, agonizing, bloody, undeserved, costly grace. Grace so great and powerful that it changes you, creates humility, repentance, and faith in you. It's not his law that changes you with its constant demands and its wagging finger of discontent. It's his love. His grace, His forgiveness. 
For with thee, O Lord, there is forgiveness that thou mayest be feared. It's his love, not the law that does it. And this grace is yours by nothing less than the death of God as man to make men his again. This is how he has loved you with his whole heart and soul and mind and strength to the very end, beyond, to life again. Do this. Do what? Believe in Jesus Christ. Be washed in his blood, named with his name, fed with his body, covered with his peace that passes all understanding, overshadowed by his Holy Spirit, called sons and daughters of God. Do this and you will live. But what about all the things we should be doing? Oh, that salt and light life? Yes. That will just naturally follow as good fruit from a good tree. His Holy Spirit will see to that. You are not some insignificant snail making your way across the ivy trying to impress God with your good speed. You are His precious, beloved bride, declared perfect by forgiveness and mercy. You live for Christ Jesus lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. That was sermon number one. Here is sermon number two. Sermon number two is preached by Pastor Swirla. The name of it is The Deep Diagnosis. Again, watch what he does with the law, and you're going to hear the gospel clearly. Here we go. In the name of Jesus. Very often when a doctor needs to make a good, deep diagnosis, he has to take a look at your insides. Thankfully, we've come a long ways in medical technology from those days when they had to do exploratory surgery. I mean, even the term gives me the creeps, exploratory surgery. They literally cut you open and dig around and look to see what's going on inside you and then close you up again. They explore your insides. That's, by the way, how surgery was invented. Curiosity. Cut them open. See how this works. Thanks be to God, things have progressed far beyond that sort of thing. Today, there are a variety of means at your physician's disposal, everything from sonograms to x-rays to all sorts of high-resolution CAT scans and MRIs that can deliver a picture of actually what's going on inside of you without having to cut you open. That's what's going on today in Luke's Gospel or in today's gospel from Matthew, this part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is taking the law into his own hands. He's taking the commandments, literally, into his own mouth. And he is explicating them in such a way that you, hearing him, get a good look at your insides. There's a line from a famous Lutheran hymn that goes this way, the law is but a mirror bright to bring the inbred sin to light that lurks within our nature. We can't really see the sin that lurks in our hearts. And so Jesus has to put us in this kind of divine 
MRI tube of the law. He's giving us a CAT scan of our internal spiritual condition. Not simply what goes on with our hands and with our eyes. You can gouge those out and chop those off if you need be. But what goes on in our hearts, you can't do much about that. Not simply the external symptoms that we religiously call sins, but the internal condition called sin that necessitates our being baptized into Christ, our being born again from above. It's not just the outward actions Jesus is talking about here, but the inward orientation and attitude of the heart. Our concern is always with the outward stuff, and that's natural because that's what we can see and feel and experience for ourselves. How do we look to others? How are we acting toward others? How do we measure up? And if we're living pretty generally decent lives, we imagine that we are doing pretty well, spiritually speaking. We're essentially symptom-free. But being symptom-free doesn't mean you don't have the disease. It just means that you're not showing it at the present moment. (coughs) People don't have cancer the minute the doctor says they have cancer or the minute they have some tumor growing out of their head. That's not not when you... You probably had cancer for years before then. You just didn't know it. You were symptom-free. If you were to look at your heart from God's perspective... If you were to be able to see spiritually on your insides, you would see things that would utterly shock you. They'd amaze you. You'd be horrified. What you'd see would be murder and lies and theft and adultery and immorality and greed and lust and idolatry and hatred and envy and prejudice and pride. All sorts of stuff. It's all lurking there in our hearts in the form of this disease called sin, with a capital S, sin. The outward sins that we do, the words we say, the actions that we do, that all begins with sin lurking deep within our hearts. We can't see that. It has to be revealed to us by some spiritual scan, an MRI from God, from above, so to speak, the law pushed deeply. To push the analogy a bit further, even if you have an x-ray or an MRI and you got to look at it, you probably wouldn't recognize what it was you were looking at anyway. When my wife Karen had her back problem, she had an MRI done of her spine and the surgeon showed us the MRI, you know, put it up there so we could see it on the screen and there they were, her two compressed discs that were causing her all the problems. But you see, had the surgeon not pointed that out, we wouldn't have seen that. We wouldn't have known what to look at. It just kind of looks like a spine. It's like, okay, that's nice. And he goes, look there. Do you see that? Compare that to that. Look at how that is. Oh, that looks bad. (laughs) See, but he had to point that out. Or, you know, when the doctor says, we looked at your CAT scan and we found a suspicious spot. And he shows you, and you look at it, and it looks like, like a bug just kind of got on the film or something like that. It's like, that's not a suspicious spot. That's a chunk of dust. He goes, no, no. See, the trained and focused eye knows what to look for, something that you and I would not normally see and overlook. 
And likewise, even having this inner look at the law is not enough because our eyes are blind because of sin. Even if we're staring at our sin face to face, we're not prone to recognize it. We just think it's just human behavior. Hey, we're just being human. You know, what, can you, what do you want? And that's why we need this word of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount here. See, over and over again, Jesus delivers the divine diagnosis with his own authority. But I say to you, Jesus has no need, Jesus has no need to refer you to a specialist. He is the specialist. His specialty is death and life and sin and grace. Jesus knows sin when he sees it, and he sees it to the depths of your own heart with the full force of his I say to you. Now, you know, who is he to talk like this? You've heard all the experts before me, but I say to you. He doesn't reference a single authority before him. In fact, he seems to overturn all the authorities who came before him. Those men of old who taught these things to you with your traditions and their wisdom. But their diagnosis was too superficial, too shallow. They looked only at the outward actions and they thought that by doing these things, they were keeping the commandments of God. And they were doing the righteousness of God. And they were earning their way into the kingdom of heaven, or at least bringing the kingdom of heaven to them. Now, I'm not saying that that wouldn't be a good start. It is a great start. You can only imagine a world where there's no murder, no adultery, no divorce, a a world where debts were reconciled quickly and peaceably, where everybody just simply spoke the plain and honest truth to one another. They let their yes be yes, their no be no. You wouldn't need policemen. You wouldn't need prisons. You wouldn't need courts. You wouldn't need judges. You wouldn't need lawyers. What a world. Sorry, Andrew, but I mean, it's the way it is. <laughs> Our attorney in the jury box over there. <laughs> and yet, and yet, even in a world that externally and outwardly ran perfectly according to the outward law of God written in our hearts, the law that every human being has available to him or her, it would still be not enough. It would still not be heaven on earth. The condition is still there. We would be essentially symptom-free, but we would not be disease-free. And sooner or later, probably sooner rather than later, the symptoms of sin lying in our hearts would emerge with that first angry word, that first lustful look, that first little lie. It's there. No amount of external discipline can change the inward ways of the heart. Oh, go ahead, cut off that offending hand, like Jesus said. You still have to deal with the other hand. Go ahead and poke out that offending eye that keeps glancing at internet pornography. Sure, you still have the other eye to contend with. And while it's certainly preferable to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye and one hand, rather than being thrown whole hog into hell, cutting off hands and poking out eyes won't get you into the kingdom of heaven. The entry ticket is this. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Unless your righteousness exceeds the religious traditions taught by men, unless your righteousness flows from a heart that is uncorrupted by sin, then the kingdom of heaven is closed to you. You cannot enter it. 
That's the deep diagnosis, and the old Adam in us does not like it one bit. And you know what you do when you don't like the diagnosis, don't you? What do you do? You get a second opinion. Yep. The world of religion is full of second and third opinions, of quack cures, of superficial treatments. And when you get a second opinion, which one do you often go with? The easier one, the happier one, the more optimistic one, the one that says, oh, don't worry, that's nothing to worry about. I think that would make a great inscription on a gravestone. The doctor said it was nothing to worry about. (laughs) Which would you rather take, chemotherapy or a sugar pill? Which would you rather hear, the condition's terminal or there's nothing to worry about? So much of what passes as religion is a sugar pill, a salve, a Band-Aid, a second opinion that says, oh, that's nothing to worry about. Trust good Dr. Jesus on this one. He's an expert on you. He knows your humanity better than you know your humanity. He knows the spiritual condition of your heart much better than you do. He can read the details of the law's MRI. The condition is terminal, the condition is damnable, and the condition is incurable. You may not have murdered anybody, but you've harbored the thought, the hatred, the anger, the road rage. It all goes down the same road. Your circuit breakers are just working, that's all. You may be faithful to your marriage vows, but your eyes and your heart have wandered. You may be truthful, but the truth always comes with a little spin, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed that when we tell fish stories and we caught the fish, the fish is always a little bit bigger? When we tell about what I said when I talked to him, we always sound a little bit more authoritative, a little bit more brilliant, a little bit more whatever it is we want to be. We're liars. The diagnosis, you're a sinner. Not because of what you do. Not because of what you say. Not even because of what you think. But because of this condition in your heart called sin. It's fatal. The wages of sin is death. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no religious trick. No spiritual discipline. Nothing in your little bag of religious tricks that's going to change a heart infected by sin. But here's the good news. Listen to Dr. Jesus. The cure's been worked. It's been done to death on a good Friday between 9 and 3. When the same Jesus who is speaking this harsh diagnosis of the law hangs on the cross of Calvary to pay for our sins and literally to become our sin. He became the disease. He became sin for us who did not know sin. So that in him and by him we might become the righteousness of of God. I know it sounds strange, it sounds bizarre even. But this disease of sin is unlike any other disease that afflicts us. All of our diseases, the ones we fear, cancer, clogged arteries, whatever, those only affect the body. They cannot harm the soul. But sin affects body and soul and threatens both with hell. It goes right down to the core of our humanity and it calls for drastic measures, extreme measures, so extreme that the Son of God came to us As a human being, he became man. He was born without this disease, without this sin. And he took this invader of our humanity into himself, and he died with it to put it to death. 
He conquered it by dying, and he conquered it by rising. And you must die and rise with him if you are to be healed of this disease. You won't find the cure for sin in self-discipline, in religious traditions, in commandment-keeping, in reading books, in anything that you can do. The cure for sin is in dying and rising with Jesus, being joined to him in baptism, which you witnessed today, being joined to him in the eating and the drinking of his death and his life, his body and his blood in his supper, hearing the word of forgiveness that drowns sin in you. Moses said it, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Death and evil in our hearts infected with sin, life and good in Jesus who came to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and enter the kingdom of heaven. There is hope for every sinner. There is hope for you, the sinner. Trust good Dr. Jesus and live in his death and resurrection. In the name of Jesus. Amen. (laughs) You see what I mean? It's not just preaching the law to convict people of their sins. It's preaching the law to convict them of their sin, their sinful condition. It goes all the way down to the heart. The corruption. We all have a terminal case of it. The only solution is Jesus. He has shed blood on the cross for you. Repent. Be forgiven. <sighs> Good stuff. I mean, this is I mean, what you heard from Pastor Holdel and from Pastor Swirla is the exact polar opposite of the speculative lunacy blindness, spiritual foolishness of Richard Rohr and Jeffrey Small and others, and even the lunacy of Rick Warren who thinks that somebody can make themselves blessable by their sheer obedience. That's spiritual quackery. Somebody selling you a product plastic banana, $3 bills, snake oil. The only cure is Christ and him crucified for your sins. The only cure is that. All right, we're up at the end of our program. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing this important radio outreach to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with us financially, please do so. You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. You know the drill. I talk about it all the time. Click one of them and fill it all out, and I thank you in advance for your support of this program. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> 